Well, a very warm welcome to the latest edition of Generation, our podcast, podcast produced by Generation, which is the mission arm of Free Church of Scotland, where we speak to folk really from Scotland and all around the world about mission. And of course, mission famously is from everywhere to everywhere. My guest today is Matthew Skirton. Matthew is the UK Chief Executive of OM, Operation Mobilisation. Um, we in the Free Church of Scotland have a agreement with OM to work with them in various mission opportunities. And it, it's been great to have folks like Sharon Rose and Philip Rose engaging with us over the last couple of years. Matthew, a very warm welcome to the podcast. Thank you, David. It's good to be able to join you uh, today. Okay, you're a world traveller. Have you ever been in Scotland? Oh, I have. Um, Not too often, but uh, yeah, I've spoken in a number of churches up in Scotland in the last years. Okay, well, we hope that in the next few years that that will be resolved and we'll see more of you in Scotland. Um, You're married to Helen, you've got five children. Tell us a little bit about your story. Most of the folk will not know who you are, maybe where you were brought up, how you became a Christian. Yeah, well, I I grew up uh, on the south coast of England and uh, always attended church uh, together with my family, um, just a local Baptist church there in the south. But I never really... Well, if I'm honest, I never really enjoyed going to church. It was something, it was a religious practice that we did as a family. And I wouldn't say, looking back, um, growing up as a teenager especially, that I had a personal relationship with the Lord. In fact, it got to the point where I was getting on for 17, 18 years old, um, and I was looking forward to leaving home, going off to university, and not having to go and do the church thing on a Sunday morning. Um, and and that, that's what happened. I went off to, to university in London. Um, the problem was, <laughs> a real blessing actually, when I was there, I kept on meeting all of these Christian young people who would invite me to different um, Christian union events. Um, and one of the young people was a young lady called Helen, who I really liked, I was really attracted to, and I thought, well, I need to start going to these Christian events if I want to get to know her better. And um, at one stage, she showed me her, a Bible reading plan that she was doing. And um, I thought, well, if I'm going to try and impress this young lady, I'm going to start reading my Bible and I can follow the same plan. And that happened in my first into the second year at university. And well, as I read the Bible through um, for the first time ever, uh, God just transformed my life. And, and I, I, started, I started to learn more about God, but I also started to learn more about myself. And it came to a point where I realized growing up in church and just attending church wasn't enough. You know, God was uh, calling me to live, to invite his son into my life, to receive forgiveness of sins and to live in relationship with him. And so that was in my first couple of years at university that I uh, received the Lord as saviour and and started to really grow as a Christian then. I I should say, I also did end up getting to know that that young lady, Helen, and we got married um, and are still married with five children today. So we just celebrated our 
25th wedding anniversary just in the last month. Well, congratulations and congratulations to Helen for probably one of the most original chat-up lines I have ever <laughs> heard in my life. Come on and let me let me show you my Bible reading plan. That's great. <laughs> So um, you went to university, you left. Uh, how did you enter into the world of mission? Well, it was it was also in those university years, as I was growing as a Christian and um, attending the, the Christian Union, um, someone came along um, to, a, to give a talk one, one Thursday evening, and they were from a mission agency that I'd never heard of, never considered being a missionary, in fact, that was the last thing I, ha I had plans for my life to, you know, get a good job in the city and and have a family and be a good Christian and and um, you know just just live a good life. Um, but but as this as this person spoke about mission opportunities, I and 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 the need, I thought, well, that's something I could do for for a summer. It would be an exciting thing to do in the summer, and so I signed up with a mission organization called Operation Mobilization. I spent the summer um, attending a large conference with lots and lots of young people. And then going off, um, we were sent out to all different countries around Europe to work with local churches and to share our faith. And I had, I, you know, I'm, I'm an adventurous, adventurous sort of person. And I heard of this country called Estonia. And this was just after the breakup of the Soviet Union and um, I thought Estonia sounded a little bit like Narnia, something exciting to go to. So I, I signed up. I went along to Estonia that summer. And really, again, just the Lord powerfully spoke to me in those days. And it, there was a sense, two things, probably. One, I was meeting people who had never heard the good news of Jesus. And you know, I'd grown up on the South Coast. I thought I thought everyone would, had heard of Jesus and, you know, had chosen to be a Christian or not, go to church or not. <clears throat> but here were people who had been under Soviet communist rule for 70 years and many had never heard the good news. And the other thing that really struck me that summer was that God could use simple, ordinary people like me, a young math student, to share my faith in a, in a simple way and to to share the hope that I have in Jesus. And so that's that's what one of the things that really changed my life that summer, just on a short summer outreach. And I came back to university doing my final year and realized God is calling me to be involved in mission work. Now, I still didn't think it would be something that would last for, well, it's nearly 30 years now. I thought, you know, I'd graduate from college and, spend a year or two on the mission field and then go back to, <laughs> to normal life. Um, but I, I went out, I joined this organization, Operation Mobilization, after university, um, went on a, uh, joined a team that was based in Austria, serving into Eastern Europe. And well, on, on the first visit to Romania, I just really had an encounter with the Lord where God spoke very clearly about the country of Moldova. We we're just were traveling around Romania and um, we stopped on the eastern side. And I asked the people I was traveling with, what countries over the board? You know, we, we were distributing Christian literature and Bibles in Romania. But I said, what's what's that country over, over the river? 
And they said, and we looked on the map, that it's the former Soviet Republic of Moldova. And um, we, we stopped and prayed for the country. And it was really at that moment that I just had a sense, maybe God is calling me uh, to serve as a missionary uh, in the country of Moldova. In fact, there was a young lady on our, on our little team as we prayed. You know, I prayed a general prayer for Moldova. And this young lady from Sweden started praying and she prayed, Lord, would you send Matthew and Helen as missionaries to Moldova? And we weren't even married at that stage. Helen was still had one year to go at university. And um, yeah, well, that's well, I, I, we, we finished our trip. We drove back from Romania to Austria and I wrote, of course, this was before emails and everything. I wrote to Helen and, you know, we talked about getting married, but I said, Helen, I think we should get married. And I think God is calling us to go to Moldova as missionaries. And then I waited the one, two weeks <laughs> for, the, for the reply to come back. Um, and well, the, the reply was positive and we spent the next 20 years uh, living in Moldova and raising our children there and, and ministering there. Yeah, it sounds tremendous. Not only was that a great chat of wine, it's probably one of the most original marriage proposals I've ever heard <laughs> in my entire life also. Um, now, let me talk a little bit about the culture of OM. Uh, OM was born in 1960. It's just moving into its 61st year. It's associated with George Verwer. I always think of OM as being kind of edgy, energetic, always on the move, um, exciting. Is that a fair description or is there more depth than that? Yeah, I think, I think um, you know, OM, as, as you say, started with George Verwer, this young American man, fresh out of Moody Bible College, who got a vision for people who had never heard the gospel and so got some friends together. Come on, let's go to Mexico. And they went to Mexico and met up with some local churches and, and, and shared the gospel and saw people come to faith. Then they heard about Turkey and the need for the gospel in Turkey and India and Soviet Union. And George and his friends, well, the movement uh, spread to, a, to a, a, an international movement called OM, Operation Mobilization. And of course, like any movement, we've become uh, an organization at some stage. You realize you need to uh, register in local, um, in, lo in, in countries, you need uh, boards and all sorts of, um, all sorts of legal status in order to get to move missionaries around. But I would say, and I, I do believe that OM uh, still has maintained that cutting edge, innovative, creative, we can we need to get to, to countries even where we need to be creative. We could talk of creative access countries. We need to go to places where people have never heard the gospel and bring that hope in Jesus. And so over the years, many people perhaps will have heard of the OM ships, the, the Logos, the Doulos, the Logos Hope, um, you know, where OM has been able by God's grace to sail ships around the world with groups of people on board going from port to port always partnering with churches, but seeking to bring the good news of Jesus. So there are so many innovative, creative, exciting ways which um, the Lord seems to have used OM teams over the years. And I hope, I hope we're still on the cutting edge of what God is doing and we still encourage creativity 
um, especially in this last year with with COVID. You know, we've all had to, haven't we, in our, in our churches, in mission agencies, we've all had to um, develop new ways of of reaching out and ministering and and running church uh, in creative new ways that perhaps weren't familiar um, in in more recent years. Yeah, certainly, you know, in my own experience, it was, you know, maybe young folk who were about 10 years older than me who inspired me in, in national, international mission. And many of them were from, uh, you know, went to ON, free church people you'll never have heard of, you know, Donnie McLean, Colin McLean, Rosemary Kirkwood, Grant Bell. The, the, these are people who were influential just by listening to them and seeing them in, in operation. I want to talk to you about um, an article you wrote, a really good article in Christianity Today you wrote just a few weeks ago called Mind the Mission Gap. And, you know, you raised the you know, startling fact that there's 2.1 billion folk who are still unreached people. You, your thesis in the Mind the Mission Gap is that the urgency to reach them has diminished. And you give a statistic there of less than 1% of Christians involved in global missions? Um, it's a cheeky question, Matthew. Did, did you invent that statistic or where did you get it from? No, it's it's a statistic that <clears throat> that actually we have, um, we've tracked uh, ever since I joined mission and, you know, got involved with mission, we've, um, we've looked at these statistics from, you know, Operation World, you'll be familiar with um, Patrick Johnson, Jason Mandrick's book, um, Op World, and then the, the Joshua Project more recently and Gordon Conwell University in the US, all, all produced some, some really great and helpful statistics on, on mission and where we're at with least reached peoples. <clears throat> and that statistic that I quote there, actually it's when we say less than 1%, it's less than 0.1% of Christians are actively involved in cross-cultural mission outreach. Um, so it's, and, and we talk of this mission gap, we, we ask, I mean, we ask the question, 2,000 or so years after Jesus was, was here on earth, um, how is it that 7.8 billion people in the world, how is it that 40% still have never heard, and not just have never heard of Jesus um, and of the truths of the gospel, but live in areas, countries, regions of the world where there is no gospel witness. And it's 2.1 to 2.8 billion people live in these areas where there's no Christian witness. Um, so we talk of this mission gap. We talk of what are the reasons. And, and one of the reasons is that such a small percentage of, of Christians in the world today, or those who identify themselves as Christians, are actually involved actively in reaching the the least reached, those who have never heard. So yeah, I think that that statistic is um is fairly accurate when we look at a number of a number of different sources. Okay, can can you unpack that just a little bit more and define active involvement? Because I, I guess you know the churches I'm involved in. Uh, one of my tasks is to increase, as far as it's humanly possible, interest in cross-cultural mission. And, you know, so we're seeing folk praying in congregations, we're seeing missionary speakers. Certainly more than 1% would be involved in that. So unpack actively involved. Yeah, and I think I, I think we, you're, you're absolutely right. When we talk of 
Um, when we include as well, of course, those who are praying for the world, I'd, 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 I'd love to think that there are significantly more Christians around the world who are praying for, for those who, who have never heard the gospel to hear the gospel. But what we've got to, what we've got to include, you see, when we talk of, we have to, we have to look at our definition of Christian. Of course, 33% of the population of the planet would identify themselves as Christian. Now, the Lord knows people's hearts, but um, I know growing up in England, I'd tick the box and call myself, uh, I'd call myself uh, a Christian because I lived in what I thought was a Christian country, but I wasn't a follower of Jesus. And I think we're looking at perhaps more realistically 10% of the population of the world being evangelical Christians, those who believe the Bible is the word of God, those who have a living, active, active relationship uh, with the Lord. So, so again, that, that, that statistic that I quote, which is one-tenth of one percent of, of Christians are actively involved in cross-cultural mission work, we've got to understand that probably we can't include those who are praying, but also that includes all those who identify themselves as Christians um, and the Lord knows people's hearts, maybe a much smaller percentage are actually true followers of Jesus. I, I hope that yeah. makes a little sense. I, I, no, absolutely, because, you know, we think of folk who fund, we think of folk who um, encourage in so many ways. Another, I guess, phrase that struck me when I read the article was, you know, forsake life as you know it. Um, is that a prerequisite for cross-cultural mission? That, you know, no pain, no gain, there's got to be a forsaking before a partaking of the glory of God? Yeah, I mean, well, that's a, that's a great question, David. And I think my answer, of course, is no. But <laughs> here's, here's the thing. How are we, as the body of Christ, how are we going to see people in some of those least rich parts of the world reach with the gospel. How are we going to see people through North Africa, the Middle East, the Sahel region of, of Africa, you know, where North Africa meets Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, through Southeast Asia, through the stands of Central Asia um, and, and other places? How are we going to see churches established in those places? Well, I think the model, as we look through church history and as we look in, you know, through the book of Acts, it is people who are willing to step out, people who are willing to being sent by their local churches and say, it's it's not acceptable. It's not acceptable that, that people don't have the opportunity of hearing of the hope that we have in Jesus. People who are willing to cross cultural, geographical, linguistic barriers. And that's that's difficult. You know, it's not... I remember the early days for myself and Helen going and living in Moldova. You know, it was it was tough at times um, to adapt to a different culture, to understand the, the people, the language, etc. So there is an element of there is an element of sacrifice. There's an element of being willing to step out of our comfort zone and what is familiar. Uh, we could say perhaps taking up our cross and following Jesus. And as we do so, I think that's what's needed if we are going to reach into these least reached areas of the world. 
Absolutely. I mean, you talk about change in culture. My goodness, you know, when I go to Carlisle, it's a change in culture. So how really? much more um, in Moldova? I mean, this is a loaded question, but to what extent does a missionary have to understand a local culture? And and tied to that question is a secondary question. Would you concede that whilst uh, cross-cultural mission is good, there is nothing to be a national witnessing and ministering to their own people group? Yeah, I mean... I'm just jotting down these questions so I can try and answer. These are very, very key questions that we have to ask as as those involved in mission work. Um, Firstly, understanding culture is is absolutely essential. If we we are to contextualise the gospel, we, we, we know in the past there's been this a colonial understanding, you know, of, of, mission where people would bring the gospel wrapped up in all sorts of um, traditions that weren't central to the gospel and weren't actually helpful for the spread of the gospel. So understanding the people, understanding the culture, I believe very much, we, we believe in OM, seeking to understand the language and speak the language to meet people and, and uh, speak their heart language is so important. But your question of um, and, and, and some people will sometimes say, well, surely national workers, near or close culture workers are more effective missionaries. And we in OM certainly believe this. Um, but we do recognize there are still places in the world where there is no, um, there is no church. There is no church that can reach its own people. So we're going to need in those places people who are willing to um cross-cultural barriers, people who are willing to go and live, maybe as as business people, as English teachers, whatever reason to to be in those countries and be able to share their faith um, together with the local people. But but we we do, just just to add one thought, we do see within OM the, the, we want to place more and more emphasis, and we're doing this, on seeing near and close culture workers. So, for example, we see sub-Saharan Christians being equipped and going to reach areas of the Sahel, that central belt of Africa. We see Egyptian Christians speaking Arabic going through um, to the Middle East and helping to reach out to uh, Arabic-speaking friends in those other countries as well. So... So it's not just, it's certainly not anymore, you know, the West to the rest. There's this global responsibility that the body of Christ has in reaching out, um, in reaching out. And and I believe needing to focus on areas where Christ is least known. Yeah, because I think you modelled this in Moldova, didn't you? Um, I think certainly up to two-thirds of your team were Moldovans. I think your successor was a national. And is it, did you experience as well that the Moldovans themselves, you know, maturing as a church, then were, were, were thrust out, to use a biblical word, to neighbouring countries? Yeah, and that was, you know, perhaps within our youth, we were relatively young, just out of university when we when we went to Moldova, and we were the first um, 
OM workers going to serve in that country. And we went not with a not with this mentality that we, we knew everything and we were going to bring, you know, bring the gospel to, to poor Moldovan people. Absolutely not. We went just to go and to serve and to learn and to come alongside. And as we served with the local churches, helping them reach out into their communities, we saw young people come to faith and be discipled and join us. And a movement started, um, which, which, 20 years later, when it was time, Helen and I felt for family reasons and just because the work had got to a stage where we weren't needed anymore, it was very natural then for the Moldovan young people who had grown up with us take on the leadership. They were already leading most of the ministry, but it was very natural for myself to step back and step out. You know, Eugen, this great young, young guy who had grown up with us, took on the leadership and other key Moldovans. And the work, what the greatest blessing for me is to see that since we've left five years later, the work has continued to grow and prosper under Moldovan leadership. And, and you mentioned as well the, the, the vision that we as, we, as we ministered in Moldova with the Moldovan church, we always spoke not just about the needs in Moldova, but the needs in other countries. We especially focused on the former Soviet republics of Central Asia. We said, perhaps, you know, God, we're seeing this revival, real revival within the church in Moldova, maybe so that Moldovans not just will keep that blessing to themselves, but see churches planted in Moldova, but see, see missionaries sent out, cross-cultural mission workers sent out from Moldova to those, those um, Central Asian countries. And of course, the Moldovans who had grown up with, uh, within the Soviet Union, um, having Russian as their international language could identify very much with some of those other Central Asian countries which are lesser reached. So it, that's been very exciting to see Moldovan believers go out, uh, not just within their villages, within their Jerusalem and Judea, but cross cultural boundaries to uh, other Soviet countries and beyond. We have Moldovans serving in OM in countries all around the world now. I read something that you wrote recently, and again, I was really interested in it. Um, it was a, a context of you're talking about leadership, and you made what I thought was a great point. You said that we were only stewards of a role. So, you know, that's obviously what you, you know, held on to in, in Moldova. You you were just a steward of that team leader role for, for a short while. I guess you're a steward of your present role as I am of mine. So just thank you for that insight. Um, any more insights into leadership? Well, I mean, that's that's certainly something that I've that I've grown up to to understand. You know, when we went to Moldova, we we understood that was a calling for a, a period of time, and it wasn't for us to do the work, but it was for us to help others grow up into their into their roles. And, and by God's grace, we we saw that happen. And it, it is the same in my role here in the UK. You know, I've I've been appointed for a four-year term, and the board just recently asked if that could be extended to a second four-year term. But I know that this is this isn't my my job for life, um, and I think that's a very healthy thing for me and for <laughs> for the organisation, the movement that that I work with. You see, my role in leadership is not just to lead but it's to help others lead and to help others 
hopefully overtake me. There's, there's many people that can do a much better job than, than me. And I think if I'm, if I'm able, now it, it sounds good, doesn't it? Me saying it now, but genu- genuinely, if, if I, if we in leadership can have the, the humility not to think too highly of ourselves, Philippians 2, you know, to, to think of others above ourselves and, and genuinely to cheer others on as they, as they take on other responsibilities and perhaps, perhaps take things further than we can. And I, I, I do believe that's really a, a healthy position to, to be in. It's not always easy. Of course, we know that. But if we can... Um, if we can hold things lightly and recognize, you know, by God's grace, I do what I do now, but God can raise up, God, God can speak through a donkey and God can raise up anyone to, to do what we're doing. None of us are, are um, irreplaceable. And I think that's probably a healthy position um, to take, knowing that he is God and we are not, <laughs> and um, and we're temporary stewards of whatever responsibility that he entrusts us with. Amen. Now, we're in the second lockdown here in Scotland. All churches have been closed in England. That's not the case yet. Yeah. Um, again, you know, God's not closed. 55,000 people on average still becoming Christians daily. Hmm. Um, what's your experience of COVID and, and lockdown uh, being Matthew and um, especially interested in a story I read about a friend of yours who ministers to Turkish folk in London. Tell us what COVID's been like in your circles. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing, isn't it? We're, we're talking 10 months or so that we've we've all been experiencing this and, and um, yeah, England also just going into this very, very strict lockdown, just as I'm speaking now in these days. Um, you know, it's it's been it's been tough. Uh, we we as a mission organization, um, we're all about working with churches, coming alongside churches and and dreaming how we can see churches, individuals from churches engaged in in mission work to the least reached around the world. Well, that becomes very difficult when we can't travel and there's restrictions and and when we can travel, we have um, uh, we have all sorts of difficulties getting into countries and getting residency permits and visas. Oh, it's 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 been very difficult for we have probably 260 uh, Brits who are serving overseas in in countries around the world with with OM and another 150 or so serving here in the UK it's been very difficult for a lot of people um so we talk about the recruiting of people of course financially it is a huge challenge we know for many churches for mission agencies so and perhaps we'll see the impact the, the economic impact you know lasting far longer than than the health um uh, challenges that we're facing but in the midst of this, we have seen, we've seen that we need, as I perhaps mentioned at the beginning, the need for innovation, the need to be creative, to think outside the box. And this is this is perhaps one of the positive things we've we've seen within OM. We had to very quickly adapt to a new way of doing things. Um, you know, our, our workers who work amongst least reached peoples here in the UK, they're all about 
going to friendship. We've got friendship centers and coffee shops and meeting people socially and evangelizing and discipling and gathering groups together and forming churches. Well, all of that had to change radically. And my friend uh, Dennis, who serves, he's a, he's a Bulgarian Turkish speaker. He came to the UK well, 15 or so years ago and is part of our team in London a real heart and gifting reaching out to Turkish speakers in London. And there's 100,000 or so. There's a huge Turkish population there. And um, Dennis has planted a church. And before the pandemic hit, he'd have about 50 Turkish speakers coming along on a Sunday morning and he'd preach sermons and be discipling people. Well, in the first weeks after the pandemic started and all the restrictions, of course, he had to adjust how he did church and he went online like, like we all had to. Um, his sermons in the Turkish language, which were reaching 50 people, suddenly 1,600 Turkish speakers every week were tuning in and hearing the truths of the gospel. And, and we... One of the big problems we had with our team and Dennis in the summer, uh, in the spring summer, was 25, 30 people came to faith, started baptismal classes all virtually, and we, we didn't know how to baptize them. How do you do that legally? It was a great problem to have. A virtual um, baptism is difficult. Yeah. Hey, hey, how do you do? But of course, the, the, the folks who were coming to faith very much wanted their family and friends to be around and to, to see and experience with them. Um, this the joy of the new life in Jesus. But we've seen the same again. Into the autumn, restrictions were easing and there were possibilities of meeting people. Um, and we've seen another 25, 30 people sign up for baptismal classes. These are, these are new believers, mostly of Bulgarian descent, Turkish speakers, Muslim background friends who have said, we want to know the truths of Jesus. And so again, we're preparing people for um, for baptism. So in the midst of all the challenges that we've faced, and we're all in, in our churches facing all sorts of challenges, we, we do have these glimpse of, glimpses of God at work, and, and that's been encouraging in the midst of some of the challenges. Okay, so listening to this podcast, uh, you know, imagine a, a 20-year-old university student out jogging with his or her AirPods in their ears, think of uh, a gentleman driving his car to a meeting, think of a retired lady up in Dingwall in the Highlands or somewhere like that. Uh, can they get involved in international mission? Should they get involved in cross-cultural mission? Um, you know, how can they using OM? Yeah, I think I, I, would, I would say... You know, probably the, the the certainly the first thing to do is is to be praying and saying, Lord, you know, open my eyes, show show me the reality of the situation. You know, start to look at some of these um, some of these great you know, websites, mission organisations are putting up all sorts of information, um, whether it's Operation World, Joshua Project, or the OM website, or Open Doors, many many others. And start to find out a little bit more. And, you know, I think of the, the words that Jesus spoke to his friends all those years ago, in, recorded in John 4. 
you know, lift up your eyes, open, <laughs> in other words, open your eyes, look around you, see what's happening. And, and I, I wonder if there is a tendency for us here in the UK, uh, just, just a little bit, we, we, we're, so, we're so confronted with the immediate needs in our Jerusalem. And oh boy, there are, there are huge needs in our country. We know that. Um, and yet, if we just lift up our eyes a little bit and just remind ourselves also, also of what's happening around the world, where people are living in countries and situations where they don't have a government who can plow hundreds of billions of pounds and, and help support. There, there are people struggling in so many ways. And of course, many are without the hope in Jesus that we have. So perhaps, perhaps it's opening our eyes, praying, Lord, open my eyes. Give me a heart for the lost. Help me to understand um, the needs of those around the world, those on our doorstep. Maybe there are least reach people groups very, very close to us, living in the same communities as us, and no one's reaching out. Um, so starting with praying and then saying, Lord, are you, how can I be involved? What are you calling me to do? I, I want to pray, but I don't just want to pray, Lord, here am I, send someone else. <laughs> here am I, use my youth pastor, use my, use my pastor to reach out. Lord, here am I, <clears throat> use me. Um, and will God mobilize us to, to help with our local church reach out into the local community? Will he challenge us to, to go overseas and, and when, when we're able to travel again, maybe a short-term outreach to understand a little more some of the needs around the world? Will he challenge us to, to give financially towards the work of those who are reaching out to the least reached? These are all possibilities, I suppose, but it starts with, well, it starts with prayer. Sure, Matthew. I mean, we're, we're moving into the home straight now and we're certainly finishing strong. Just a couple of things before you go. I'm really interested in what you're reading just now or what you've read in the last few weeks. You tell us that. And also, um, quite keen to know, do you regret not taking up that job in the city? As a mass graduate, you could have done something with statistics, you could be working out somebody's share portfolio just now or <laughs> your own. So let's finish with these two things. First of all, your books and then your regrets. Yeah. Well, well, books, one of, one of the books that I've really been, um, really been enjoying is uh, Tom Wright's book, which I came across fairly recently on Paul, uh, the, the Apostle Paul taking through Acts, but written, it's a, it's a very readable book. And oh boy, it's exciting. <laughs> it's exciting. Yeah, I, I, I read it last year and enjoyed it thoroughly. Did you? So yeah, that's, that's one. I always have a few books on the go. I'm, I'm good at starting books. I'm not always good at finishing them. One of them I just received um, for Christmas. It's a diary of a of an Anglican reverend who um, he, he writes in a very, very honest way, you know, his dreams and visions for reaching out into an inner city area of England and, um, and the realities of that. I only just started that last night, but I found it hard to put it down. That's, I, I can't remember the, the title of the book. Um, so those, those are two that I'm, that I'm, uh, I'm reading at the moment. I was also given for Christmas we have we have five teenagers in our house at the moment. Just in, until next month, when my daughter, eldest daughter, turns twenty, someone gave me one of I think it's a Rob Parsons book 
on um, raising teenagers. It might be too late, but I'll be <laughs> I'll be reading that in the next days. I, I hope as well. Um, so there's a couple of books that I'm that I'm into at the moment. Yeah, well, I, as a parent, um, I, I can give you some you know assurance here. The first thirty five years are the worst. It gets easy <laughs> after that. <laughs> Regrets. Uh, you know, I, I have to say absolutely no regrets at all. You know, yes, there have been times as a family, you know, we've, we've, we've lived all these years on, uh, as faith missionaries on the support of friends and uh, church members, churches, individuals who have been supporting us. And I can look back on, what is it now, 27 years and say the Lord has always provided for us. And you know, it was a struggle when I was a single on the mission field, then, then as a married couple, and then we had five children. And, you know, they, they're getting older and they keep eating more and more. <laughs> Two teenage boys, three teenage girls. But I tell you what, God God has always met our needs. And, um, you know, we we feel so blessed as a family as we look at um, look at what he's been doing in us, through us, and just his provision for us and care for us. Um, that there is there is no semblance of regret that that I should have just got a normal job because that's not what God was calling calling me to do. Of course, God calls different people to do different things, but that I do sense that I've been walking in the calling that God has has given me. Matthew, thank you so much. That's been a really enjoyable 45 minutes. And thank you for sharing of yourself. Just to remind folks, have a look at the OM website. It will tell you what's on offer, things to pray about, opportunities to go on. Remember the Operation World website. And also the Joshua Project that Matthew mentioned is a tremendous source of statistics and vision. You can read more about that. 2.1 to 2.8 billion people who are unreached and lost without a knowledge of Jesus. Generation listeners, thank you. Enjoy your jog, enjoy your drive, wherever you are. Tell others about this podcast. We want more folk to listen because we think that we're talking about good things. Thank you, Matthew, for coming. Thank you, people, for listening. Have a great day. Mm